happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 135 for the 22nd of May in 2019. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm usually from Missoula, Montana, where I work at the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. But tonight, I am on the road in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, uh, with my wife doing a little long holiday weekend and exploring the sights and scenes of this area of the country, which I've spent almost no time. But instead of talking about Santa Fe, I want to go over to my friend, Dr. Wes Fryer. Wes, who are you and what are you doing here? Well, I am a construction worker that has wandered into the home of a person that looked like they had a lot of technology today in Oklahoma City. No, I am uh, Wes Fryer and still the director of technology at the Cassidy School, where we are wrapping up our semester. This is our last week of classes and finals. My ninth grade daughter has two more tests in French and geometry tomorrow, and my wife has a couple more days. And Anyway, we have a week of professional development next week, and we'll have graduation that first Saturday of June. So I am excited to be joining, and we apologize for those of you that may have wanted to join us live. Um, wow, things are going on with YouTube, and we could not get this work on three different computers in two different locations. And so here we are in Zoom with our backup plan, and hopefully this recording will go well. So, Jason, where would you like to start tonight in the exciting links that we've we've got here? I think you may have a few more that you didn't put in. So feel free to take us far afield wherever you would like to, to go. Sure. Well, there's a lot of interesting security news this week, so let's start there. Um, I guess maybe the the uh, easy one that, that's maybe more technical that I think kind of gives a sense of the security problems that, that, that are plaguing us right now in the broader technical world um, there was an interesting article from Inc. Magazine, um, in, uh, actually it was an undated uh, article. This is kind of virally, but I, I, I wanted us to, to, to push out this message because I think it's super interesting. Um, the CEO of Delta Airlines um, recently conducted an interview where um, he talked about what his biggest fears are. And obviously the airline business, um, not just in the United States, but worldwide, is, is under constant threat. Um, the due to climate change and, and where uh, airlines will end up in kind of a post-climate change world. There's also issues related to the prices of petroleum, uh, where we go with alternative fuels with airlines, and then most recently, of course, uh, most major airlines in the world have been uh, uh, dealing with the aftermath of the um, Boeing jet grounding that happened after those two jets crashed due to what appears to be software errors. But despite all these things, the airline CEO, um, uh, his name is Ed Bastin, and he was talking to uh, uh, Kai Rizdell from Marketplace, which is a, a PRI radio program um, on on um, economic news. And he said, so what, what, what's your biggest worry? What keeps you up at night? And he said that the thing that I think most about regards to my business and where we're going with things is cybersecurity. And obviously the airline industry is heavily steeped in tech, right? Like there's so many systems and oftentimes if you've ever been a frequent traveler and run into delays, if a computer system goes down, it can really take down 
really the entire airline grid, not just in the United States internationally. But it's interesting. I think the the frequency and also the tone of articles that we refer to on a weekly or every other weekly basis when we talk about security are starting to get more. It feels like a, a little more aggressive in, in their warnings and and in the the real possibilities of, of true security issues. But obviously, if airlines are worried about this, then every industry is likely to be impacted by that. And it's probably not news per se, but you know maybe a message out there to all those that are tech directors in schools and are reading all the gloom and doom related to security. Please know this is impacting really every industry. And whatever good work you're doing to lock down your network or to create better uh, end-user policies and procedures, teaching security, not just to your staff, but students and also parents from the outside. It's work that's that's necessary. Um, it's work that is worth your time. And unfortunately, um, it, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better in regards to the security piece. So not real news per se, but I just thought that was a really interesting comment that it's, it's of all the challenges of the airline industry, cybersecurity is what keeps the CEO up at night. Well, it's actually a good segue to um, the article I've got there from the Free Press OKC, which I'm sure is an extremely popular news source there in Missoula, Montana. But this is from May 21st, 2019, and the article title is After Seven Days, Oklahoma City Public Schools Says Network Fully Operational After Attack. And Oklahoma City Public Schools is one of our two largest districts here in the state of Oklahoma with over 45,000 students. And they were subject to a ransomware attack that hit them a little over a week ago. So I do not have any personal insight into this in terms of I have not reached out to, you know, friends of mine that are, that are in the district and, and in the know. I've just read some articles. Um, one of, uh, yeah, one person at school has, has visited with somebody as far as just learning a little bit about just how serious it is. Um, the author of this article, because I actually, you know, tweeted this as I usually do for articles that I'm going to be sharing on the show, <clears throat> uh, contacted me about having an interview. And I actually may be interviewed tomorrow. Um, I ran that by our communications director and our head of school. Um, and, and I think, you know, the interview topic is basically, you know, how, how are you trying to be proactive, uh, to, uh, you know, be re- be preventing these kinds of things from from happening, and so I think I'm probably going to write a blog post about that. Um, but you know, certainly, like you mentioned, the educational aspects of trying to educate users about um, not clicking links that might in in any way be suspicious, being careful where you're logging in. You know, the the whole phishing threat uh, is gigantic. But you know, we've been on a multi year move, as I think probably most schools, but maybe maybe not. Um, but we certainly have been to move to the cloud where we are, you know, we've gone in the last 10 years from about 13 physical servers to three. Um, and one of those, you know, has, is, has virtualized instances. And it's just, we are, you know, maintaining a microcosm of data compared to what we used to in the past. Yeah. Uh, certainly going to Google and, and all of, you know, email and file storage in the cloud is, is huge and, uh, and gigantic. But, you know, the, the first year I started four years ago as a director of technology, we were moving from local servers uh, hosted on site to, you know, cloud-hosted servers. And so, anyway, there's a lot of different things that we do. Security is not a single, there is no single panacea. And unfortunately, in organizations uh, like schools, 
you know, the weakest link are the users and you can do all you really want to as the administrator and, and the security person or whatever. But um, ultimately the vulnerability, uh, a lot of it just, you know, comes down to what users are going to do, what they're going to share, what they're going to click on, um, you know, two-step verification. I was going back and looking, it was back in 2017 that we made the decision to go ahead and move all faculty and staff over to two-step. We took almost a year to get everybody to do that. Uh, I think it was in the spring that I'd gone to a meeting where, where I'd heard actually just one other tech director talking about that. But as we discussed that and I did more research, you know, I basically recognized that that is just a key element. And so along with password managers and encouraging yeah. users to use unique and long passwords on every single website, which I'm sure all organizations, you know, probably except Google maybe or whatever, you know, there's probably some organizations uh, really with the use of physical keys that right. are, you know, in a better place with all, with all of that. But anyway, this is, you know, last year, I think you guys had that attack that affected yeah. Montana schools. I went to a cybersecurity um, day uh, that was uh, hosted by our local affiliate of COSIN, the Consortium of School Networking, about three weeks ago. And I'll drop into the show notes. I made a Google, or sorry, a Twitter moment, uh, which I've been using instead of Storify. Storify is offline, but moments are collections of tweets that could be from you and from other people. And, and I like doing those now for events. Anyway, it was a fantastic day. And uh, basically all, you know, technology directors and, and IT professionals <coughs> from schools around the state. And so um, it's uh, that what was mentioned your the Montana, you know, situation, uh, which was really odd in terms of the way in which, um, you know, the, the, uh, the schools were, were being, well, the data in that case was being sent directly to parents and it was, it was really a weird thing. So I, I did actually hear a rumor and I'm not going to repeat it online as far as how much the ransomware supposedly has been, been for in this case, but you know, when you add up the, the costs of being, I mean, here we are into the semester, right? Data's got to go in, just, right. you know, critical yep. time. Um, these are things that, yes, are, I think are just going to continue to get worse before, before they get better. So I will add that I look forward to, I think, 38 days from now when I pass the <laughs> torch formally over um, at our school and I will be stepping down as the director of technology and have a new role where I am basically able to focus on academics and then I'm going to teach a couple classes this, right. uh, this year. So I, I'm looking forward to that because the responsibility um, that you feel for the security of your data, your network, your users, uh, it's, it's huge. And, you know, for larger organizations, there are individuals that are specifically tasked to be security officers. In our case, you know, we have two full-time people in our technology department. We have a, a database, a half-time database person that we share with communications and, and we have others that help us, of course. But anyway, it's just, it's a big load and, um, I think that, you know, whenever I hear about airline delays, it seems like uh, there was a big delay around the last time either our son was flying home or I was flying. I think it was when I came home and I came home later. Uh, you know, my first thought was, well, that was probably cyber attack, you know, because it was something that had affected multiple airlines and, right. and delays and you think, you know, computer system. So I'm glad that yeah. you were able to safely get there to, uh, to Santa Fe. And uh, I do hope that whenever, you know, F the FCC, we hear them talk about these upgrades they're going to do to their systems. And, you know, man, you know, we've got some apparently pretty stable, pretty safe systems. And thinking about, you know, the potential of problems with a new network upgrade there 
is pretty sobering, but I'm sure there's going to be lots and lots of smart people working to try to make that happen smoothly at whatever point that does happen. Sure. Well, let's go. We have a couple of more specific articles related to security this week, all of which are, are super interesting. One of them is something that, that I actually discovered um, yesterday in an email from Google, but um, the Verge reports on the 21st of May that Google has revealed that several G Suite customers have had individual users that have had passwords stored in a plain text file on servers for upwards of the last 14 years, which is an extraordinary number, especially for someone as, as I think, um, security conscious as the, the folks at the, that run the G Suite. But um, essentially what it comes down to was that uh, there was a bug in their systems. It particularly impacted people that you had reset a password for on the administrative side of that interface. And so it can generate a password for you or you can choose a password and oftentimes force those users to then go in and change the password to something else. Um, I received an email from Google Central uh, yesterday with a spreadsheet with, I think it was about 19 users, and considering that you include all of our archived users, we have uh, uh, upwards of, of, of 25,000 uh, G Suite users in our system. The fact that it only impacted 14 of that group uh, tells me this is probably a pretty unique bug that, that didn't uh, apply very widely to a lot of instances. But... Um, you know, this is the stuff you got to keep track of. And more importantly, I think it highlights that, you know, I one of the reasons why we use G Suite as part of my day job at the Montana Digital Academy is that they run all the security for us. We don't have to apply patches. We don't have to monitor security. We don't have to look at if there are patches released for new vulnerabilities for Linux servers or any of the pieces that help run the back end of the, the kind of corporate um, a Google suite, but despite the energy that I know goes into that, there's still errors. Uh, uh, you take uh, a lot of the human fallibility that comes with people that maybe only have a little bit of experience. I know when I first propped up uh, uh, G Suite for my organization, I did it on my own, and I was a pretty tech-savvy teacher, but I wouldn't call myself a, a tech director or someone experienced at setting up systems by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it still happens. And so I know uh, I saw some traffic on the G Suite administrators uh, Google group, um, that I, I think both Wes and I uh, um, are subscribed to that, that that email had ended up in a number of G Suite users yesterday's uh, administrative accounts. But yeah, super interesting that that is the case. Um, by chance, Wes, did you get uh, that email yesterday? Was that the one about all the logins that happened or? Yeah, this, well, this is the, um, it's, there was uh, Users that had passwords that up until they patched the vulnerability. Right, yeah, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it. However, it very well could have come to our main um, admin account, which is not you know connected to me. And so sure. I'll, I'll look for that. Um, I wanted to mention and, you know, taking this to think, you know, thinking about how do we become proactive with this in addition to moving to the cloud. Uh, last Friday, I, or Thursday, Thursday. Um, I took the day off and was up at our church, and um, along with the network consultant that has worked there with them for years, uh, we interviewed all the staff, and they're looking at different information systems. And we were basically, you know, being an outside, uh, you know, kind of uh, perspective on, you know, hearing what their their pain points were, et cetera. But talked about a lot of different things. He showed me Amazon Workspaces, which allows you to spin up a Windows 10 instance or whatever you want. Um, have as much RAM and CPU cores as you need, 
do your processing and then either just kill it or, you know, you know, keep, have it, but spin it down where it doesn't, you know, cost as much and have as much. Holy cow, that is just incredible. And if you do that, as you mentioned, you know, in your situation, you don't have to worry about updates. You don't have to worry about patches. All of that stuff is taken care of for you. Um, I, you know, we are still running our, our own domain controller, uh, handling DHCP, handling our, um, our, uh, DNS and, and we probably do need to, you know, I don't think, I don't think the network can work without, you know, having that, but that, that server, there are some ways in which that can be virtualized. And of course we have things backed up and stuff like that. That's another part of your strategy as far as preparing for any kind of cyber attack. But I, I think that it is such a game changer to see what Amazon is doing. And then other companies in terms of the virtualization of, of computing resources. Um, I, you know, the first time I ever sat up, sat, set up a, oh gosh, what's it called? Uh, when you, um, when you have your, you can install all of your, um, WordPress and these different engines. Basically, it's a oh, hosted, like, hosted account. Right. Like SoftCalus is one of them. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a, a or, uh, uh, C panel. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, anyway. You know, spinning that kind of thing up and then, and then realizing how many of the kids, and this was a few years ago, you know, in our, in our state are still just learning Dreamweaver. You know, I mean, they're still just coding HTML and it's like, holy cow, the velocity of web design and where we're moving with the web, uh, is, you know, difficult and challenging to stay up with. And that, my thought there was, hey, I think rather than, you know, buy software, we ought to, you know, spin up a a cPanel account for, for different students and then be able to, you know, let them see what, what kinds of, of software they can run and things that they can do. So anyway, it, it's pretty, um, well, it's hard to kind of keep your head around all of this. It's vital that we have dedicated professionals um, in our schools, not only people that we can afford to keep on staff, and depending on the size of your school, I mean, that's going to vary, uh, but this is also a really important place for trusted vendor partners, right, and folks that are going to really come alongside and and help and have a preparedness plan for how are we going to, to deal with, you know, the different perspective, not only attacks, but other kinds of disasters. I mean, we live here in tornado country, so... Um, Anyway, I think that this this gives you a lot of food for thought, and hopefully, you know, as a school district, not only do you have staff that are on on these topics and can't you know staying up to to speed with them, and you know, implementing a strategy where your organization is continuing to move towards a more secure and you know redundant and protected environment in terms of everything that's happened with computing, but you're also partnering with, with vendors and folks that are going to really be able to come alongside and help because, you know, security professionals are expensive and these incidents are very expensive. And unfortunately we are not immune in education to any of these kinds of issues in terms of not only systems that can just fail and go offline and we're going to make sure we got to have our backups and everything in place, but uh, also just attacks and, and what it would mean for breaches and privacy sure. and, and all of those kind of things. Okay, Wes, is there any other security article we should cover tonight? Um, let's see. Um, there's a CNBC article I dropped in from May 18th. It's called Why Some of the World's Top Cybersecurity Hackers Are Being Paid Millions to Use Their Powers for Good. Um, I have heard 
<clears throat> or read a, a couple articles recently. In fact, even one was about the Marine Corps uh, that was hiring folks. I think this was like sort of volunteers, but I, they were also paying money. Anyway, just really trying to get white hat hackers to come in. and You didn't have to, <clears throat> you know, follow the typical basic training and, you know, uh, cut your hair and, and do all the kinds of normal things that you might do when you join the military. Um, this is, this is such an important um, aspect of not only, you know, the computing landscape, but it's, it's everybody, right? Everybody has their, their data, their information online, uh, and cybersecurity is just continuing to get more and more important. And so this says that the shortfall of cybersecurity workers for available jobs could reach as high as 3.5 million unfilled by 2021. I mean, that's in two years, right? I mean, that is just crazy. And so this is really interesting. So the article is talking about a startup uh, called Synac, and they're hiring freelancers. And so rather than, and I think they were talking about one of them just reaching a million dollars. And so rather than just sign on with one company, you know, you could be a freelancer and then be on a team and, you know, try to identify vulnerabilities and then, you know, be paid bug bounties for identifying things. But uh, really, really interesting because it's kind of sort of like gig economy uh, employment where we think about somebody working on a contract basis, no health care, no benefits, you know, no permanent job security. But in this case, you know, it could even be more lucrative and beneficial for folks to be able to use their skills as white hat hackers and, um, you know, basically be a gun for hire. And I, I thought that was was pretty fascinating. So I haven't heard the advertisements for it this year, but I know Rose State, which is one of our local community colleges uh, here in Midwest City, it's it's near just north of Tinker Air Force Base to the east of the city. Uh, they have, for the last several years, had cybersecurity boot camps, and they've got that program. I mean, the salaries that folks start out with, I want to say they start at like 70000 and up. Yep. You know, uh, uh, this is just for a two-year community college program. And uh, our assistant tech director actually went to that uh, summer before last and was pretty, pretty impressed. Uh, it was just kind of a taster, but I would, I would encourage folks to find out what's going on in your area. Let people know, right? Because this, <laughs> we, we, we don't know what the future holds with careers and stuff like that, but we can say confidently that, you know, barring some kind of uh, global EMT, you know, solar flare, you know, worst case scenario stuff, worst case scenario. We're just going to have more and more digital all around us. And folks that are going to be able to help protect us and keep our system safe are going to be in high demand. So that is a real clear connection to the classroom. And I would say also, and I hope that next year and in the years to come, I can do more with this. I think we need to bring more parents and alumni and just others in our networks into classrooms for students to be able to to hear from and talk to who are involved in doing cybersecurity, doing, you know, uh, computer-based work, and really try to help students think about, you know, what a career pathway might look like if, if they're going to do something like that. I know our son, who was home from college this last week, was talking to, he's a, finished his junior year now in college, he's talking to our 18-year-old who's about to start college, you know, and she's looking at forensics, and he really encouraged her to think about uh, dig, forensic science, digital forensic science, you know, yep. and uh, the ways in which technology is going to play into that. And it's interesting to see how people will hear and listen to folks differently, right? So mom and dad can say things, but, you know, when brother says something, it's right. a different way. The same thing is happening with kids in terms of their peers or who they listen to and whether that's, you know, 
their teacher or somebody else. And so I know, I think that's another connection here to think about ways in which we can bring and highlight uh, folks in the classroom for students to be able to think about their careers, their skill sets, and what's available in the local community, because there may be some kind of, of summer programs or, you know, uh, certifications or things like that that are available that might not involve a degree and a necessarily, you know, something that's a it's a massive commitment, but it may be some kind of a taster and some something that can orient kids towards that kind of a career. Right. Well, and and the other thing I thought about when when uh, you mentioned this article was that it it does help also highlight the extreme challenge of keeping qualified teachers that can teach this stuff in K twelve schools. Let's ignore the uh, challenge of finding qualified technicians, qualified tech directors, and how many you know teachers have been thrust into that role that have to remain largely self taught um, in in that arena. In fact, my my colleague at the Digital Academy, Mike Agustinelli, uh, was a tech director for a smaller school district in. Montana for a couple of years and came from a classroom environment, did a great job, but talked about how a lot of that was was just kind of flying by the seat of his pants and doing a lot of reading and and connecting with colleagues and doing the kinds of things you need to do to kind of teach yourself the, the best practices there. But then you go back in the classroom to find folks that have the traditional pathway to get uh, an education degree and make sure they have the proper endorsements for an industry that changes pretty dramatically every couple of years and, and the focuses that are there. Um, you mentioned Dreamweaver, uh, uh, Wes. Uh, it's an example of something that I know that tool still gets taught a lot. In fact, a lot of Adobe educators that um, uh, uh, work with the Adobe K-12 folks do professional development for other teachers. Uh, Adobe has done a good job of maintaining Dreamweaver as part of their recommended suite for students, even though if I were teaching web design, and my guess is that if you were teaching web Design West, setting up a WordPress site and and utilizing a platform like that to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you is better than coding from scratch in a lot of ways, especially if you don't intend on maintaining and keeping a secured lockdown website uh, to be able to, to to be able to serve up that particular content. And um, you know, the teacher shortage issue in the United States, uh, actually, in from for most Western uh, democracies, is my understanding. It's also true in Great Britain. It's also true in Canada. Uh, it's very real, right? But there are certain areas that used to be the conversation was about um, world language teachers or special education teachers, that those areas still have serious shortages. But if we are going to have increased attention on providing students more opportunities to take computer science courses or very deeper, deep computer science courses at the end of their, you know, four-year high school education or 13-year K-12 education, that requires qualified teachers to do that. And um, that's that remains a huge challenge, I think, for our industry. And to, you know, your arena of expertise, the opportunities for distance learning, right? Because yep, you may absolutely. not be able to locally afford to have or have an opportunity to have that kind of yep. a teacher. But through distance learning, you can. You know, we are fortunate in Oklahoma to be the partner for this Malone network. And so we have students taking courses from Stanford University. And these are high-level, uh, like, multivariate, you know, uh, statistics or, you know, advanced calculus. Uh, there's even some, you know, genomics and just awesome, awesome stuff that's beyond the, the, the curriculum of what we're going to be offering. And I'm thrilled that we're having a chance to do that. And sometimes people are thinking about distance learning a lot more on a, you know, course recovery, uh, you know, basis. And there's obviously different purposes for that. But I think, you know, the arenas of cybersecurity and all kinds of niche fields that you're, you know, you just may not be able to have somebody on staff with 
what a perfect opportunity for distance learning. I want to mention one other security article, and this is the Engadget article from May 18th. Google stats show how much a recovery number prevents phishing. And so we've talked a lot about two-step security on the proactive side. I absolutely believe that every single school organization, I mean, people are different as far as cellular and what's available and stuff, but like we got to lock down our accounts and we can't rely on teachers using, you know, 30 character random passwords. That's just not going to probably happen. Uh, and even if you're using that long, unique password, you still need to have another factor for authentication. And so this was a very interesting article because they have the statistics for Google and just turning on, you know, adding your phone number as far as uh, a recovery device. This wasn't even saying that you needed to to have two step, you know, really prevented your the, ta- the takeovers of of your accounts. So. Definitely, you know, this isn't a situation where it's all doom and gloom and there's nothing to do. I think there, there definitely are some clear pathways for what we need to be doing. Um, and, you know, multi, multi-factor authentication is a part of that roadmap. Absolutely. Can we, can we talk about Huawei a little bit? Sure, yeah. This is a huge story. Why don't you start? Well, we've talked about this for a number of weeks, and it's one of these things that's kind of a puzzle with everything else, which we won't go into this dominating, you know, political uh, news screens and, and, and mainstream media as well as social media in the United States. Uh, you know, the CFO of this Chinese company, Huawei, which is the largest cell phone manufacturer in China and, um, you know, competing with Samsung and, and Apple uh, was arrested an, a number of months ago and has been held in extradition. And, you know, it's like, what is this and why is this going on? Well, um, things have really moved forward to the point where now the United States has placed Huawei and 70 of their affiliates, according to Reuters on May 15th, on a U.S. trade blacklist. Then on May 19th, Reuters reported that Google has suspended some business with Huawei after this, this blacklist. What uh, the chief executive of the United States did was basically sign an executive order which I think it, it declared an, an emergency uh, or national security risk. And so anyway, he was able to do things, you know, based on that kind of authority. And this has to do with 5G and the rollout of 5G technologies, the fears that many in the United States security agencies have that the Chinese government has been and will utilize their capabilities uh, to you know, siphon off information and data and, and be able to, to listen in and basically compromise the security uh, of the United States citizens, United States government, and then also, you know, steal intellectual property. And so one of the really interesting things about this is what does this mean for Huawei as a smartphone manufacturer? Because there is an open source version of Android that's out there. But in order to have things like Gmail, you know, on your device, that actually requires a license from Google. And so there was, there was, a, I think there's another article. Yeah, this is from CNET on May 21st. Huawei already seeing a reprieve on the U.S. trade ban report says, but you know, like, what is, what is this going to mean? Uh, Mashable said on May 20th, why Trump's Huawei ban could cripple the, the company, basically saying, hey, if, if they can't, you know, have the app store. So you had to have the Google, the Google app store and to have Gmail, you got to have a, an agreement with, with Google. Well, China already has 
some different, you know, social networks and, and mail services and things like that, but they don't have a robust app store. So this would certainly impact Huawei in the European market. They're already being blocked, you know, in, in the United States market from uh, widespread sale of their devices. I know when you were in Costa Rica, I think, didn't you see a, a Huawei phone there and pick one up? So yep. this is really, really big stuff. And uh, again, we've mentioned it on the show. I, I lament that outside of speech and debate and folks preparing for extemporaneous, you know, national national tournament or whatever, like how many, you know, teachers and students are sitting around and talking about why are we in the middle of a trade war with China? What is up with Huawei? All of these, you know, this blocks. What what does this mean for, for the economy and, and what is it going to be going forward? So enlighten us, Jason. What is going on? <laughs> well, so I – there's, there's so many facets to this story, and, and I think it's also pretty interesting in that, I mean, I, I, I dream someday of, you know, giving up a day job and having enough money and access to, you know, good international health insurance to be able to maybe do the digital nomad thing for a couple of years where I just do freelance work and maybe increase some of my current freelance work enough to where I could travel and, you know, live in, in various areas on Earth. You mentioned on my trip to Costa Rica um, over Thanksgiving break in November, and we did go to a Costa Rican Walmart um, and it was delightfully interesting and, and as overwhelming as a U.S. based Walmart, I might add. And in their electronics section, which looked a little more like a, a, a Costco electronics section than, than what I'm used to from the standpoint of a, a, a Walmart electronics section, but they had a whole cell phone section and they had a variety of, of, of phones that most U.S. consumers have never heard, heard for, of before we would call them mid-range phones in the United States and, and low-end phones, but there's just so many more choices because um, you know, they're aiming you know, uh, cheaper phones with, with different compromises across the line uh, to consumers outside of you know, Western Europe um, and, and, and North America. Um, so starting with the, the Huawei situation, um, for those who have been following the story, a lot of what the Trump administration uh, said they were concerned about was networking equipment. Right. So there's a, a variety of um, uh, a variety of, of uh, 5G implementations. And in fact, in the United States, there was a lot of talk that rural implementations of 5G because it's so expensive to take areas of, of, of vast uh, uh, ruralness. Montana, uh, for instance. Oklahoma, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, right. In fact, I having spent a lot of time in eastern Montana in the last year, I can tell you that even the 3G service there can be a little spotty. And so, companies like Verizon and T-Mobile and AT&T that that all have uh, uh, decent networks in Montana, as they want to roll out 5G, it's going to be really expensive to do that in you know the northeastern part of the state, where sheep well outnumber the number of human beings um, in in that region. But that said, though, we, there have been Huawei phones that have made it into the United States market. I think, believe Huawei made the uh, the Nexus 5P, I believe, which was a Google phone that was released a couple of years back, and they picked a different manufacturer to, to manufacture those different phones. But you mentioned the app market piece of this. Um, it's already pretty complicated for vendors like Huawei because parts of the Google suite just don't work in China. 
Um, a good example of this is Google Maps. Google Maps has a lot of pretty advanced technology, and I think we take it for granted because it comes pre-installed on most phones. It's easy to download if it's not. If you go to China, there is no Google Maps there. The, the technology, you can download an, an illegal version of it, um, not, not illegal, an off-brand version of it that uh, uh, via side-loading is what the process is called in apps. But, um, but a lot of the servers are based outside of China and are blocked, and so the technology is not particularly useful. So I did hear this week that Huawei had expected something to happen, and they do have an app marketplace. It's the Huawei application market or a Huawei app store. And I'll admit, I'm a little leery. Like, you can just download in the same way you can download the Amazon app store for Android. You can also download the Huawei app store and be able to install pieces onto there. I'm a little leery of it. I don't have, um, well, let's put it this way. I'd want to take one of my, you know, experimental phones at home and do this with a, a junk account just in case the security protocol there isn't as strong as it would be elsewhere. But um, the bottom line is is that that instead of having, you know, a set of 20 or 30 apps that are really worldwide apps, what these actions are taking, and it also has to do with a lot of the threatened uh, antitrust uh, actions that the United States government and then particularly the EU is also perpetuating against platforms like Android, we might end up with 6, 7, 8, 10, 12 15 different app stores, right, that you can download onto your phone, and that creates fragmentation in that we may all be on different tools, right? Part of the prospect for me of a WeChat or a Facebook, for that matter, or Twitter, is that if we're all on the same general sets of tools, right, if those become the go-to tools to find people at, then you don't have to have six chat apps on your phone because, or five app stores that install six different chat apps because you can kind of centralize onto a, a set of few tools. But, yeah, it's been interesting to watch this for sure. Did we talk last week about the, the Supreme Court case for Apple and their monopoly thing and did we talk about that i can't remember but i if even if we did let's let, let's let me, remind let me folks of that, that. One in here because that one's tied in and uh so this is this is from may 13th supreme from the verge may uh supreme court says apple will have to face app store monopoly lawsuit and basically you know um you know everybody's mad at apple i mean that's just you know common to um, especially when somebody's really successful. I mean, I'll, I'll yep. put it that way, but you know, they're, they're very, very lucrative company. They've been very successful. So there's a lot of people, you know, angling for them. Um, there's a lot of aspects to this as well, right? I mean, Apple's goal, and I'm dropping this link in here. If you want to take a look at it, um, has been to take a 30% cut essentially of, uh, of everybody's apps and, and, uh, you know, Netflix and, and other companies have definitely, you know, had, had some issues with that and, and that whole model. And so anyway, this is now supposed to have, you know, major impacts on Apple's um, bottom line, their stock price. Um, this lawsuit is going to move forward. And uh, from a security standpoint, it's, it's really uh, intriguing, right? Cause we've got two, two competing views of how the world should work, com you know, computationally in terms of app stores with Google being a much more open, um, a much more permissive environment for users, uh, not doing nearly the stringent gatekeeping and, you know, censorship, uh, that Apple has done and continues to do. And so it will be interesting to see if this lawsuit and, and this whole train of, um, of advocacy, I guess, 
you know, leads to a break in what has become the most vibrant and arguably successful app store in the world. And we're going to, you know, have to look at other kinds of models, you know, to your point, having more of a fragmented environment. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. It's been a while, but you know, uh, I guess I, I'll, I'll say it out loud. Okay. This will be, this will be transcribed someday. Right. So it'll be, it'll be so too long. <laughs> At one point I, I was actually jailbreaking my phone when I, and I blogged about it on my blog under an alias. So if you ever look at my blog, <laughs> under Sherman, Sherman Nicodemus was the best blogger <laughs> who wrote about jailbreaking because, you know, I wouldn't want to publicly admit that. Um, but it was pretty intriguing. I mean, the re- there were two main reasons I was doing it. One, I wanted to be able to tether my phone and not be limited in doing that. Yep. And then I also wanted to be able to mirror my phone when I taught workshops because this is the days before Apple TV, AirPlay, yep. um, you know, these different various mirroring apps and software and, and ways that you had to be able to do that. You had to jailbreak your phone. But anyway, so in the process of doing that, learn some different things, never, never bricked a phone, but that was where you loaded Cedia, uh, which I think perhaps is still, you know, sort of the jailbroken app store. And then once you have that, you know, you can download stuff, but it's incredibly perilous, right? Because there's a lot of malware and, and malicious yep. stuff that's out there. And so you're just much, much safer, you know, with your iOS device sticking with the regular app store and letting Apple protect you. So anyway, as a technologist, I, I learned a whole lot about smartphones and software and security and things like that as a result of that process. And I also got to do cool things with my phone that Apple didn't want to let me, you know, do at that time. Um, but I guess I would hypothesize that with this Supreme Court ruling, I think we're going to see changes in in the ways that app stores are functioning on on iOS, and I think that it may it may lead to to, to a fractured environment, but it also may lead to more consumer choice. So that's I guess what I would just say. Hopefully, is that that's going to be beneficial uh, for for end users, but who knows? It remains to be seen. Yep, absolutely. And in the meantime, um, you know, I still think, at least on the Android side of the world, we could use more phone options in the United States. Um, I'm now in week three of you utilizing my Pixel 3a, although I am carrying an older phone with me this week just because I travel. Uh, when I travel, I usually bring my, my old V20 that's got a removable battery, so I add my super battery to it so that I can... Uh, you know, not have to worry about charging it on long travel days like today. I'm now up on, on, uh, hour number 18 or 19 of today, uh, traveling from Montana to Santa Fe. But, um, you know, I, I, I love the mid, mid-range phone that I picked up uh, from Google, but I've also had great experience with low-end phones too, and could probably get away with a phone that's not $1,400, uh, to do what I do with it. And I tend to pull more out product productivity on my phone than probably the typical user. And, um, you know, if we like it or not, this is something we have to figure out a way to come to terms with, despite the security or perception of security issues, whether they're real or not, is that we need additional manufacturers in China to provide other options for users around the world, right? And obviously there's 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 emerging markets. India is a good example of this where $25, $50, $100 cell phones have to be part of the equation there because of the sheer number of population and the way 
their economy works. Um, it's also true, though, of, 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 of advanced uh, capitalist democracies like the United States, where we have a lot of people that rely on their cell phone. It's a critical piece. Uh, they're uh, ignoring all the other social reasons why you might want to have a smartphone. Tons of government forms now are digital only. Um, there are so many ways we interact with one another digitally that having access to a low-cost option is pretty important. But, you know, when you walk into T-Mobile, which I did a couple of weeks back, the real reality of the situation is, is that they're pushing you towards, uh, you know, $900 phones, $1,100 phones, $1,300 phones. I reject that. I'm sure they're great, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Reject that. Well, on the note of technology that may not be quite as expensive, you dropped a couple articles about Chrome that seem sure. exciting. You want to pick those up? Sure, absolutely. Uh, first, I, I want to note that uh, I am a 100% Chrome user now. Um, I am using a Chromebox at work. It's temporarily on my desk because we're moving to new facilities and it will end up in a conference room at some point. But I have uh, the CTL i7 Chromebox with 16 gigs of RAM on my desktop right now, which means I'm using that 100% of the time. And then I'm carrying with me um, a, a Chromebook uh, right now. And I, I just don't utilize other platforms. And so when I, when I talk about Chrome being powerful, I'm not talking about handing out cheap, slow Chromebooks to your students and then, you know, having a MacBook Pro in front of the classroom. Like I'm, I'm, you know, eating the dog food here, right? Like I absolutely believe that, that if I'm going to advocate for this platform, I need to use it. So that comes with some expertise for me now because I feel like I'm working around things. So, Two super interesting articles. The first one is that uh, from Chrome Unbox. This was on on uh, yesterday on on May twenty first. Um, Adobe has released something called Premiere Rush, which is a um, I, I guess it, it, the best way to describe it is a kind of a video editor um, on the Android platform that seems like it's quite functional from what I'm able to see from screenshots. But the interesting part of that announcement is that they will be at some point allowing this to be installed on Chromebooks as part of the Android App Store um, uh, uh, that that is implementable on Chromebooks. And so there are some things that are still woefully lacking in the uh, Chrome world. Um, a lot of them can be made up with maybe slightly less functional web-based tools. Um, I'll admit, I don't really use Android apps that often. There are a handful of them that I use occasionally for, for kind of specialty implementations. But for me, it's all about just using web-based tools. But it's super exciting to me that uh, Adobe is working on providing options for more high-end uh, multimedia processing via their tools, which they're implementing on, on the Android platform. On a related note, I have just almost finished, I think there's still at least one, one glitch identified, um, implementing the single sign-on for Google for us to be uh, an Adobe, basically, you know, enterprise user. Um, we went ahead and purchased the site license. If you are, if you have the need for 10 or more, uh, even educational licenses for Adobe Creative Cloud, yeah. it's worth it to just go yeah. ahead and pay $2,500 and get 500 licenses. And that's how they've got that all structured. But I'm also really excited because this gives us access to include our younger students uh, that have Google accounts to single sign-on to the Adobe Spark environment, which is completely yes. free. And there are apps for Android and, and iPhone. I I love those apps. Like I use Adobe Spark Post 
multiple times a week, maybe not every day, but almost every single day to make an info pick about something. And so anyway, I think this is very exciting. Um, Adobe, you know, has been and continues to be a hugely important player in the world of multimedia and creation. And so their uh, move and pivot to, you know, some cloud-based and web-based tools uh, is pretty exciting. I do think that designers and, and even thinking about schools and laptops for the foreseeable future, and this may change and maybe you disagree with this, Jason, but like for high school kids who are going to be doing, you know, graphic design and stuff like that, I think you still need to have a full on Mac or PC to be able to run the creative cloud and have access to all those. I apps. agree. However, there's a lot of users that aren't going to fit into that category and the trajectory of the, the, uh, you know, landscape here is that it's going to be continuing to move more to the cloud. So this right. is exciting for Chrome users. Well, and something that, that's possible now that really hasn't been possible to this point because of the lack of, of cloud-based services is that it's very realistic for you to provide high-end laptops or high-end workstations uh, scattered around a school for students to utilize those great high-end tools when they need them and otherwise defer back to the inexpensive Chromebook when that's possible because you just drop that stuff into cloud-based folders. You access those folders on the Mac or PC, which is essentially the strategy that allows me to you know move laptops all the time, right? I I, I do try to maintain at least a functional knowledge of of, of uh, Mac OS and also of Windows 10, and I have devices at work of, of various vintages that allow me to do that, but. I couldn't be productive without cloud-based uh, uh, file storage, right? And so when I am, I, if I'm sitting here right now, and let's say I have a piece of media that I want to use in some other way or process, throwing that into my cloud storage, uh, I happen to be a Google guy, although I have a lot of projects where I work with OneDrive, it's just as functional to allow me to go cross-platform to to take things from various devices and then go to the powerful PC or go to the powerful Mac that can do the video or audio processing and then save it back to the cloud again. And then I can go back to my more modest, uh, 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 cheap platform that can do those pieces. And, and again, what about Amazon's workspaces, right? Absolutely. I mean, this may not be viable today, but for for... <laughs> For anyone who wants to be uh, or who is a professional, you know, being able yep. to spin up a cloud-based version of, of, of updated OS, everything, the software you need, I mean, that is phenomenal. Of course, it all rides on bandwidth, right? So let's make sure yeah. you've got plenty of it because, you know, if you're sitting out there with 3G, you know, connectivity, it's not, it's not going to cut it. But I, right, absolutely. I think it's really exciting for cloud-based computing in the in the future, um, basically of, of almost a terminal-based computing environment, which is kind of what a Chromebook is, right? You're accessing right. on the cloud, and you're really not relying on a lot of horsepower locally to be able to do things. Yep. And then one other interesting article, too, from Forbes. This is from Forbes on May 19th. Um, it's an extended detailed analysis about why in the long term Chromebooks are likely to increase in price. And um, I, for now, probably two years, Wes and I have been promising to do kind of a Chromebook show to talk about some news and views related to that. Something that I have been thinking a lot of, though, is that I do think that one of the critical uh, problems with the Chrome environment is that I do think people see 
cheap Chromebooks and assume that that's the way to get to one-to-one when they're not always the best application if you're buying $119 uh, Chromebooks. Um, it's not that they can't be functional. It's just that if you want something that can do a variety of things, you really do need to invest in some minimums. It's going to take that price away from, you know, 89 for data Chromebooks, 119, even 200 or 250 might not be enough to get a wide enough distribution of more powerful devices. But as touchscreens become the norm on Chromebooks, as higher end processors and more RAM and more storage, now that Android devices are are used on these devices, that there may be an uptick over time, especially from traditionally low-cost producers like Acer, that they their Chromebooks that are intended for the masses may indeed go up in price. And part of it for me is that the, um, well, I mean, I, I used to, to, to advocate pretty strongly when people were shopping for Chromebooks. As an example, you got to have four gigs of RAM as a minimum, right? And you should prefer the, the Intel processor over the ARM-based processors. And you know, there's some minimum advice there. But for me, I even think now that, I mean, obviously it's an expense to do that, but assuming you're going to keep a Chromebook around for three, four, five, maybe even, well, the maximum will be six because that's the longest that Google supports it from an update standpoint. But I think even investing in four or $500 Chromebooks um, makes sense from the standpoint that the usability is going to be so much better for the end user that they won't be stymied by the low-end hardware. Um, the my, my recommended Chromebook right now is the HP X360 14, which is uh, the Chrome, Chromebook I recently implemented um, as uh, to our remote team. It's remote adults at the Digital Academy that, that do um, on-the-ground servicing and professional development for one of our programs called EdReady. And uh, we decided to move away from Windows laptops and go with Chromebooks. We can manage them remotely. And um, it's a big Chromebook. Uh, it's 14 inches, 14 inch 1080p screen, has eight gigs of RAM and an M or I'm sorry, an i3 processor, eighth generation i3 processor. And that thing is so flipping speedy. And what is it? What, that's the name of it again? It's an HP 14 X360, I think is the, the brand name of it. And they, they come in a weird color. They're, they're, uh, it's got a white cover and a blue uh, undercover. And so they kind of look a little Fisher pricey, but um, but it's speedy and a oh, touchscreen comes with it as well. It, it, it has the kind of four way convertible piece because you can put it in tent mode and regular mode and, and, and tablet mode. But it is an amazing laptop. They keep going on sale for below $500. Yeah, it's $450 uh, at, at Best Buy right now. Yeah, and that's that. It, it, I have to say, like, it, it has the best keyboard I've ever used on a laptop, too. But we have an office one that, that's kind of our spare to, to sub in in case we run into issues. And because we're we're, you know, we 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 uh, we're an enterprise, right? It's maybe a small staff, but an enterprise. We we bought some pretty decent insurance uh, uh, and uh, extended warranty form as well. So the price was higher than that, but you know, that that piece of hardware is so much more functional than if you go and buy the minimum spec Dell Chromebook or you go to Lenovo and buy their minimum spec. You know, and they, they'll even tell you they're aimed at students. And, you know, if, if, if really all you're doing in school is working on Google Docs, that's probably fine, right? But once you get anywhere more complex than that, or you are increasing the, the, the media complexity, both accessing and consuming and creating, um, 
that that means you should invest more more aggressively. And I get it. There are schools in Montana that that have nine, ten, eleven year old Windows hardware that they've you carefully maintained and done minor updates to, and now it's running Windows ten and it's just fine. It feels crisp enough to do basic things. We have to eke out every you know, uh, 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 a squeeze of juice out of hardware to make the investment worth it in K-12 schools. But I do think at some point that the lure of Chromebooks being super cheap hardware is going to have to be rectified with the fact that the cheapest hardware really isn't for, it's not even for, it's not even not for power users. It's really not for average or typical users. And I'm going to throw in the security piece too, which we spent half the show, you know, talking about security articles. Um, you know, one of the ones, and I'll, I'll go ahead and pick this one up uh, with Microsoft, is talking about this next Windows 10 update. This is ZDNet from May 21st. Windows 10 version 1903. Is it safe to install yet? There have been horrible issues with Windows and the updates to Windows 10. I spent more hours than I care to admit, you know, prior to December and just... Tr- salvaging, I mean, it, it was related to firmware issues, but basically once we unfroze with deep freeze some of our lab computers and it pulled down these updates, you know, it, it display bricked these machines until we ended up, you know, getting the firmware zapped and fixed. And it's, it was, it's been a nightmare. Uh, and so it definitely as a director of technology, you know, gave me an even more sour taste in my mouth for supporting, you know, a Windows platform. But on the Mac side as well, I really, I, I love Macs, right? I love my Apple stuff and, and I'm, I'm surrounded by it, right? I've got three, three Apple screens, you know, right here that I'm, that I'm utilizing. But when it comes to security, um, you know, both, both Mac and Windows are, are more complicated and there's more vectors for, you know, hackers and folks that want to do malicious things to be able to, you know, get into those kinds of systems. So it's the return on investment and what you're talking about, how many years are going, yep. our school is going to be able to eke out is really important. And that's a hugely important thing to not you know, just say, Hey, I'm going to just buy the cheapest, you know, the cheapest whatever. I mean, that's always been an issue with one to one, right? Some people are like, Hey, What's the cheapest price you can get right. stuff on my loading dock? I'm going to buy that. Guess what? That is probably not the best device for you for a lot of different reasons. And one of them is going to be the return on investment and how long and dur- you know, how durable and, and long lasting those things are going right. to be. But consider well, security in all this. And Chrome, in my view, is, is the absolute winner when it comes to, to security and ease of support from an IT standpoint. And then the name escaping me, um, Wes, the early, the early tiny laptops 10, 12 years ago, what were those called? Net, netbooks. And then netbooks, we had OLPC too, yeah. Right. So I, the, but the funniest thing, when those first came out, they were going to change the world and everyone's buying them and they're coming with these like seven inch keyboards. They're impossible to use. They were vastly underpowered. And the they, web wasn't it, mature either, you know, to handle. Right, yeah, the web wasn't really enough to be able to do that. But I, I used to laugh because, you know, uh, I would go to, well, in fact, uh, one year I went to ISTE and, you know, a lot of people were carrying around a netbook, right? But they were carrying it in addition to their laptop, right? So it's like if you truly, uh, if you truly think a netbook is, is the answer to your problems, great, then use that as your primary device. If you can't, then you should not, you know, be advocating for these as a, as a, uh, you know, a revolutionary tool, right? They can do some, but they can't bring the full suite of, 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 uh, tools to students. And your point about, you know, you're, you're, you're eating the dog food, you're, you're full on, uh, Chrome. I think that is, that for me, that in my role, we're going to be looking at one to one, you know, for, for a year from now. And, 
we've got predominantly MacBook laptops in the hands of all of our teachers um, in our middle school. Uh, well, and that's across the across the board. But if we are going to be looking at perhaps doing something with one-to-one and devices, you know, I, I think ideally your your teachers and your students are going to be carrying the same device. Um, and so anyway, you know? that, that I, that's something I've thought of before, but it's just something else I'm, I'm attending to a little more now. Well, we are about 18 minutes after the top of the hour. We did start late. I don't know if I, it didn't actually tell me how long we've been recording for. Um, we want to pick up a couple more articles and then geek of the week it. Sure. Um, you dropped some things on on esports. What's going on in the world of esports? Oh man! So this is from I don't know, don't know this website. Gamma Sutra, uh, May twentieth, two thousand nineteen. Some publishers pay streamers as much as fifty thousand dollars an hour to play new games. Talking about the ways in which influencers are so well compensated now. And then there was a CNET article on May twentieth. Pro Fortnite player uses. Uh, sues gaming organization over oppressive contract. You know, esports are now at a level similar to professional athletics. Uh, the amount of money that, that kids are making, um, our athletic director's son is at the University of Oklahoma, and one of his friends is making thousands of dollars. In fact, I didn't see if I could do a podcast interview with him, actually, because <clears throat> he's making thousands of dollars playing esports, and in some cases traveling, in some cases just playing from you know his dorm room or his house or whatever. In the case of this pro Fortnite player in the CNET article, you know he was in a very oppressive contract they were taking like 80% of his earnings, but then they were prohibiting him from competing in some other places. And basically, you know, these young people need to have agents and make sure they're not getting taken advantage of in the same way that somebody who's going to, uh, you know, be, you know, going into the college athletic world uh, and then certainly from college into the professional world, right, needs to, needs to have good counsel, right, legal counsel, because you're talking about lots and lots of money. So, uh, this is also something I think, you know, the Huawei news thing is probably something that people aren't as attuned to. And if you're, if you're not paying attention, you may not realize what a gigantic thing esports are, how many of the students in your classroom or in your home today are spending a lot of time watching other people play sport, you know, play electronic games. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's just, again, barring some kind of, of massive, uh, disruption that's going to cause our, our digital economy to you know, have the bottom fall out of it. Uh, we're going to continue to have a lot of folks playing games and being paid to play games and watching games. Uh, it is a spectator sport. And so I thought both of those articles were, were pretty notable. So Jason, when you all were hosting your exchange student last year, uh, did, was, was he a gamer, a game? Oh, yeah. uh, Fortnite was the, the game of choice then. And in fact, he kind of introduced me to that. And, um, uh, he he like it, it was like classic classic uh, American teen uh, situation. He uh, last spring or so the, when he was here, well, we went to spring break in um, in in or I'm sorry, the Washington coast, and I ended up uh, finding another location, and, and I was the last throws of my dissertation, so I spent most of that week writing, but. Um, he was at a house my, my in-laws had rented. So these were effectively his American grandparents and he has spent most of the week, uh, playing Fortnite. And of course his, you know, his, uh, host grandmother was just, I don't understand why he needs to play, you know, the whole week. And, you know, it was funny because it's like, welcome to be an American teen. And then, you know, to, to my, my mother-in-law, welcome to being a, you know, a grandma in, in 2018, right? 
Um, but yeah, he introduced me a lot to that. And for him, it was a connection not only to, uh, to, you know, new American friends, right? Because he was playing Fortnite against a lot of people that he was going to school with, but it was also an opportunity for him to keep connected to students uh, that he went to school with in Sweden. And so for him, it was, well, I think we actually had the article, um, uh, uh, we talked about the article on here, but, you know, the, the, the social network of choice um, for a lot of, of American teens is Fortnite, right? Because there is a communication component. It's much more significant than a lot of, um, you know, first-person shooters that, that have existed in the past, but um, this notion of, you know, that a lot of, of, of interaction uh, goes on in that environment, I think is pretty funny and extraordinary um, and certainly uh, something of interest. And and I think, Wes, you, you are correct that, I mean, I, I think it's easy to kind of, you know, tilt your head and squint your eyes at this because of, you know, like, well, wait, you're watching someone else play the game, but let's remember Sports, sports, right? Are you, wait, you're, you're watching someone else play the game? Like, well, that's correct, right? Like that we have a multi-gazillion dollar industry around people watching, in some cases, sports that are pretty obscure, but are still at a professional level and have enough money changing hands to have people be full-time um, in part of that process. So um, there are esports teams and squads across the United States and American high schools. Um, I... I this, I, I want to say I heard this a couple of months back that a couple of state athletic boards, uh, every state does this a little differently. It's a nonprofit in, in Montana that regulates high school sports, but have looked into providing some state regulated esport competition so they can help put the same processes that help protect students uh, in competitions uh, in, you know, wrestling or football or volleyball. Um, in esports as well. And uh, to quote a, a former boss of mine in Helena, you know, coming to a school near you. So that is something that, that we probably see more and more in the future. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, hopefully next week we will figure out a live streaming mode, but we can probably do, <clears throat> do a few geeks a week and uh, wrap this one up. So you want to sure. go first? Yeah, two two quick things to share. Uh, a travel tip um, that uh, which I'm in the middle of doing right now. Uh, my wife and I like to use Airbnb as a strategy for finding. Um, it's not just inexpensive. It, it is about expense in part, but it's also because I like to find unique places to stay. That you know, every Holiday Inn Express room looks like every other Holiday Inn Express room, right? And if you want to live in a city and experience what it's like to be in a city, I think the best place to do that is to live in someone's home. And that used to be a complicated somewhat arduous process to find uh, opportunities to do that. Um, Airbnb is obviously something that has, has helped uh, shake up that industry substantially. It doesn't come without controversy because it does do things like raise rents in high rent markets across the United States. But as a consumer that uses the tool, I know a lot of people have had bad experiences on, on Airbnb because some people are not totally um, uh, uh, up and up actors in this uh, arena and you can stay in some pretty gross, disgusting properties. And there's been some real abuse, um, including live video cameras and apartments and yada, yada, yada. And one of the ways I, my wife and I've had a really great experience using Airbnb is by there's a search uh, thing you can do in the advanced search of Airbnb properties where you can only do what's called a super host. And super host is an identified person um, that works with Airbnb that has an established great ratings and um, it can be trusted in essence. Uh, usually it involves more vetting on the part of, of Airbnb to do that. 
the properties are generally more expensive than the off-the-shelf Airbnb stuff, but since you're usually saving so much off of traditional hotels anyway, um, it's a great idea, I think, to be able to do that. Um, and I particularly recommend if you're a conference goer um, in, in any conference, but uh, uh, my partner in crime and I at the Digital Academy, Mike Castanelli and I, we're going to go to ISTE this year. We ended up having to do something back in Missoula for two of those days, so we're not going to attend this year. But ISTE hotel rooms were approaching $400 a night for conference hotels. We found a beautiful two-bedroom apartment that had two bathrooms, which is not something you see that often, that was six blocks away from the, the conference center for $110 a night. And so shared, it would be well less than what we pay for a, a single room between the two of us. And so Superhost is the way to go. And then... um this is really exciting for me, uh, mentioning that I have been um, kind of Chrome uh, Chromebook only for some time now. One of my favorite tools is Text Expander. It's my favorite text expansion software. It works very slickly on Windows, very slickly on on, on Mac OS. Um, and up until very recently, there wasn't a very effective tool for doing text expansion in Chrome OS. Well, um, there's a public beta now for text expander for Chrome. I was actually on the private beta list, and I think I, uh, I'm not sure if I signed an NDA, NDA but I promised them that I wouldn't say anything out loud. Um, and I've been, I've been testing myself for six months now, and it's now got a public uh, uh, beta. To be clear, this is a pay-for service. TextExpander is not it's commercial software. You have to buy a license for it, but it is slick. And one of the reasons why I've been able to go Chrome only, um, Chromebook only, is because TextExpander is now available for Chrome. So if you are, I think there's a 30-day free trial um, that you can utilize if you are a text expansion person. Uh, of all the many little tips I like to provide for people, uh, text expansion has really been my number one go-to for being really productive, especially with email. So text expander for Chrome, now available in the Chrome Web Store. Uh, worth your time, great productivity tip. Awesome. So I'm just going to have one this week, uh, normally my three, and I kind of I'm, I abuse Geek of the Week all the time. So anyway, this is just one. Derek Mueller has a wonderful Twitter channel called Veraticium, and uh, I actually got to see him present at the Miami Device Conference uh, probably about three years ago. And he just did a video, it was a little longer for him, 23 minutes long, and he t calls it, my video went viral, here's why. But this is actually an extremely insightful um, sort of, you know, ex explanation as well as critique of how the algorithm with YouTube has been changing, how that's really difficult for uh, the creators of the platform and how actually, according to what he's saying, it is, it is giving people, quote, what they want, but it's really leading to a lot of clickbait and a lot of low quality content if you want your stuff to be seen. So I'd really commend it to you if you'd like to understand the YouTube platform better. He's also just a great storyteller, right? So he's using these, you know, an easel with hand drawn illustrations and things, and he's a very good explainer. Uh, so that video, which is pretty new, May 19th, already has 1.8 million views. A uh, great channel to subscribe to and a great video that can help us understand YouTube more. So, Jason, what have we been up to here the past hour doing? And, you know, is this something that people can find out more about somewhere? 
Well, as it turns out, Wes, yes, that is uh, available in many places on the web. So this is the EdTech Situation Room. We're a once-a-week podcast where Wes and I like to dig through the headlines for technology and kind of toss them back and forth looking for the educational angle. If you'd like to join us, we are live Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. I think we've discovered that it jumps back and forth, but 3 o'clock a.m. UTC if you are an international time kind of person. But if you can't join us live, although please do. We tweet out every week when we can go live, and we love to have people in our chat room when YouTube is working for us as expected. But if you can't, you can download this podcast anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated. It includes the Stitcher platform, um, uh, Downcast has a, 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 a tech situation room, and uh, as of late, every time I try out a new podcast app, I can find um, our podcast there. So please download that there. Hey, Wes, speaking of you, where can people find you on the Internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is Speed of Creativity. I've actually written a blog post the last two days. So I'm uh, actually I think I'm going to be a bit unleashed in my new role. So I'm looking forward to doing a lot more writing and blogging. Um, but you can find most of my content there on speedofcreativity.org. And how about you? I'm a tech savvy teach on Twitter. Um, I have not blogged the last two days. The blog that I work with, which is the Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Teacher blog blog at ncc.org. But I would like to announce that a session, a call for proposals is up. Uh, if you go to www.ncc.org, you can go to next year's conference, which is in fabulous Seattle, Washington, and see more information there about um, presenting at that wonderful conference, which is something that you'll go and, and see me at each and every year. Awesome. Well, I was looking, uh, there is an option. We're doing Zoom tonight, and so I'll be uploading this to YouTube uh, rather than having the automatic happen there. But there are some live streaming options from Zoom. Maybe we could experiment with Facebook live streaming, Jason, because it looks like there's a configuration, and that, that would be interesting to probably, you know, connect with a larger audience there. Who knows? But we appreciate everyone tuning in tonight. Great. And thanks, and we'll see you next time on the Intake Situation Room. Good night.